0: the story goes that NASA was interviewing religious leaders that they were going to send to Mars in order to raise the profile in support of the mission but only one can go and the condition was is that they wouldn't return back to earth so the first applicant was a priest and he was asked how much he wanted to be paid for going and he says a million dollars and I want to donate it to the church the next applicant was a minister and he was asked the same question and he asked for two million dollars. I want to give a million to my family, he says, and then another million to my ministry. The last applicant was a rabbi. See, you're laughing already. When asked how much money he wanted, the rabbi looks left and right, and then he leans in quietly and he whispers to the interviewer's ear, three million dollars. So why much so more, much so much more than the others, the interviewer asks. Well, the rabbi says, if you give me three million, I'll give you a million, I'll keep a million, and I'll pay the engineer a million dollars to go and never come back. So by the end of the second week of December, we see the change start to uh, settle in. Schools wind down, traffic patterns in a week's time will suddenly and pleasantly thin out. At the office, you'll begin seeing a sharp drop in emails and phone calls, hopefully, and if you're the one sending the email, you'll be surprised at how quickly you get a reply, except it'll be an out-of-office reply. So whether you're going to Mars or to Florida, this is clearly the season to go somewhere. Now in my house, we have two kinds of travelers. Those who plan, and those who get annoyed with those who plan. Now in case you can't break the code of what I'm saying, I'm the planner and my wife is the one who gets annoyed. But the thing is with planners, is that we get caught up in the drama of the trip long before the trip actually takes place. Planners scour TripAdvisor to see if the hotel is actually as nice as it looks on the website. And the answer is always, no. The front of the hotel is never lit that way. The lobby never looks like a royal reception. Your room is never that bright, and no one ever smiles that way for that long when they're serving you a drink. It's just not possible. The other thing is that planners, is that they scour for things to do once you actually get there. The season, This season, if you're traveling, brings you to a beach. Well in advance, or arriving, you might have looked at the pictures, or perhaps a brochure that the resort has of them on their website. But be prepared that the pictures show the beach, but almost always. And look next time. The pictures they show almost always are of one or two people strolling on an empty beach. No one is ever around them. The, pre- the pictures promise you not just the beach, but the experience of something different from where you live. The experience of being alone. Remind yourself of that when you and 11,000 other people who have seen the same picture are all at the beach at the same time trying to order a $12 U.S. margarita. Now, if you're heading to a city, you'll be searching for the top 5, 10, or 20 things to do wherever it is that I'm going. And remember that even if you hire a guide, they're going to take you to the same places that you'll see on the things to do wherever you are list. And the list has a curious effect. If you complete it, You think that you can tell everyone that you've seen and done everything there is to do and that there's no need to ever go back. Like, I've seen New York, or I've seen Lisbon, or I've seen Jerusalem. So as I've started to pack my bags, I asked myself, why do I travel? Is it maybe to see something new? Yeah, maybe. But the truth is, you can see much of the world from where you sit next to your computer screen. Meaning that it's really, really hard to see something that is completely and totally unknown to us anymore. In other words, it's hard to be surprised these days. Maybe it is to do something different with your time. Yeah, maybe, but most people usually end up doing lots of things they do when they're home, when they travel abroad, we eat and we sleep and you get back to your hotel room and you watch TV you play on your phone and you take selfies I mean how many of us actually end up on our vacations climbing Kilimanjaro or surveying the Gobi Desert the French philosopher Pascal once said that since most people are miserable in their homes why would they think they'd be happier anywhere else so why do we travel and why do we look forward to it, and why do we plan it? And there's a multi-multi-billion dollar industry at stake here with this question, including a lot of your hard-earned dollars. Untold miles of coastlines have been raked, and designed, and cultivated, and manicured, all based on one simple premise, that by you paying to go from point A to point B, that you're going to be happier. Which is to say, that this is a material view of happiness. That the better the hotel, the better the room, the better the view, the better the beach or food, that the happier you'll be. But live long enough, and I pray you all do, and you will know this one truth about happiness, that it does not arrive on call. It happens. You can't order or plan for happiness by being somewhere. In the modern world, we travel for pleasure. But in the ancient and not-so-ancient world of only a 100 years ago, people seldom left the 5 or 10 square miles where they were born. People usually married someone who lived in their town. They were born and they died there. People travel for need, for a job, or for security. And our Torah portion brings us to the end of Jacob, of Israel's life, and in many ways the beginning of the children of Israel's story. Jacob is living in what we now know to be the land of Israel, and he has to leave because of a famine that has left the land barren and his family hungry. As fate would have it, years after a plot had had his son Joseph sold off to slavery in Egypt and left his father Jacob believing that he was dead, Jacob is now second only to Pharaoh with power over Egypt. And Egypt just happens to have all the food. Jacob now knows this morning that he is alive and he is leaving to be with Joseph in Egypt before he dies. And as Jacob is on the border of leaving the land of Israel, his homeland, about to leave it certainly for the last time in his life because he is an old man and he knows that this is the last journey that he will take in his life, the Torah records this one bone-chilling scene on the night before he is to leave, he goes outside of his tent and it says that he offers an offering to God. Now if it is true, and I believe it is, that most Jewish prayers are never directed to God, they're directed to the people who pray, to make us different. What is it that Jacob was praying for? What was the message of what he was asking God? And our question for this morning is, was that prayer only for Jacob as he was about to head on his journey? Or maybe it was a prayer for our travels too? We'll discover the answer, but everyone first kindly rise on page 368 for some prayer and music, and then some more thought for me. Okay, so I have a question to answer and that is, why do we travel? The philosopher of Bataan once said that journeys are the midwives of thought. And in fact, that is true. That be what Jacob was saying, as a man, Jacob did. He traveled many, many miles throughout his life. All the way up north into Syria, down into Egypt, back to Israel, what is modern day Israel. He did a lot of journeys in his life. And he's there on the border, on the precipice of leaving his home for the last time. And spending his last few days of his life in Egypt. I wonder what it is that Jacob was thinking, what thoughts did he believe that this journey might bring to him. Now this time of year, as it gets colder and the days draw shorter, I always am reminded of this one story and I want to share it with you. After uh, seven years of Israel, that being university, and army, and then ultimately ordination, I left Israel, went back to New York, not sure what I wanted to do, but knowing that I didn't want to be a lawyer. And so I went to the most unconventional of places. I went to another yeshiva, rabbinical seminary, where I was there for six months. Now this place was everything that I wasn't. It was black-hatted, it was countermodern, and it was closed. But one of the gifts that those six months brought me was a friendship with one of the married students. His name was Eli. And as I was to find out that Eli's father and Eli were both skions of a famous rabbinic family and Ellie himself, his father, had been a famous scholar. And one night late in the study hall, I asked Ellie about his dad and he told me this story. His father had a regular Wednesday evening class in a synagogue and on this particular Wednesday evening, it was a blizzard that had struck New York. The buses were closed down, the schools were shut, The police were telling people to stay off the roads. And as dinner ended, his father got up from the table and walked to the front door. He put his jacket on, put his hat on, put his gloves on. And Ellie's mother says to him, Nisim, where do you think you're going? And he says, well, I have my class. She says, Nisim, honestly, look outside. The snow is piled up to the door. There is no way anybody is going to your class. He said, I'm going. And as he's about to step out the door, my friend's mother turns to him and says... Get in the car and drive your father. Well, it had been a five-minute walk usually. It was a ten-minute car ride because the conditions were so bad. They pull up in front of the synagogue. His father gets out. And Ellie says to him, I'll wait here because if no one is there, you can come back to the car and I'll drive you home. He sees his father go inside the synagogue. He waits five minutes and ten minutes. And then he starts to pull away and then he realizes that maybe he should go in and check on his father. So he parks the car and he walks into the synagogue and he hears his father teaching. And then he pulls close into the room and he peeks inside. And his father is standing and teaching, but nobody is in the room. He waits the hour for the class to end, and when his father comes out, Ellie says to him, Dad, who were you teaching? Nobody was there. Why didn't you just come out to the car? And his father turned to him and said, Eli, I teach this class every Wednesday night, and the malachim, the angels, were waiting for me to teach, and what was I supposed to tell them? That it was too snowy outside? And every year I think of that story at this time of year and I'm reminded that Ellie's father on a cold blizzardy evening went from far Rockaway, New York and touched all the way to the heavens. So why do we travel? We travel in some ways because we hope that we'll discover something about us in a different place. And I hope that's true Because the person you are here and the person of where you're going will be the same person. And ultimately, those are the best kind of journeys that you take in life. The most rewarding and richest journeys that you take are the ones that go inside of yourself. Because happiness is not being somewhere. Real happiness is being someone. Shabbat Shalom and safe travels.